to actually begin to change our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and the world around us. I pray, Lord, that you would bring amazing peace today to your children. I pray that you would help us to celebrate our Savior and that you would help us to walk into to power. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. <clears throat> Thanks, Miss Linda. Oh, it wasn't Linda. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> nice. I, I get in trouble a lot, so I'm totally used to it. <sighs> so uh, we did set out some communion cups. If you didn't get one and there's not one near you, John is in the back, and if you can just stand up there. No, I'm just kidding. Just just kind of look subtly cool, and if, actually, you just look around, they're all over the place, so we just threw them out in the room, just scattered them around like seeds, so anyway, so today we're, uh, we're wrapping up this series, and I hate to, this is, uh, this is kind of the, my favorite series ever that I've ever done, I've learned more from it, I've, uh, I've grown more from it, in fact, if I could just turn right back around, start from the beginning, and teach it all again, I would, <laughs> it's just... So helpful, so good, so practical. So today we're going to move into uh, how, just kind of, I guess, put a bow on all that's been, we've talked about before and kind of wrap it together into a simple act that's uh, simple but not easy. You know, in life, some things are simple, but just because they're simple doesn't mean they're, they're easy. And so sometimes the simplest, most obvious things we need to do are the most difficult things to do. And that is kind of a subject that we're talking about today. And so I hope you'll bear with me. I hope you'll take these points as, uh, as we walk through them, as we walk through like, I'm actually going to do like three sermons today, so I'm going to try, I might go a little faster than normal. I don't know, we'll, we'll see how it, how it works out. But God's good, and he'll walk us through this. Okay, are you with me? Are you ready? That group right there is ready. All right? You, okay. <laughs> I'll, not, I'll not pick on anybody anymore. All right? So here's the deal about uh, relationships, life, walking, following Jesus. I don't know what you signed up for. I don't know if, every, if, if the bill of goods that you signed on to was like, hey, if you follow Jesus, it's going to be roses and, uh, and, and butterflies and all that. I don't know. But if you've been following Jesus very long, you figured out that's probably not true. Your spouse is still ornery, your kids still won't listen, the money still doesn't flow in, the health is still an issue, or whatever it is. And so what we're going to do today is walk through how we deal with these troubles. See, the Bible says, Peter wrote to us, he said, and this is Peter, this is Fisherman Peter, he's really blunt about things, he says, be truly glad, there's wonderful joy ahead. And I like that part, okay, I like the joy ahead part. But then he goes on and ruins it all by saying, even though... You must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. So let me be honest with you. You're like, weird, preacher's being honest, very strange. You're going to get hurt in life. People are going to hurt you. People you love the most will hurt you the most. Some of the, most of them, most, the vast majority of them do mean you no harm. They were just trying to take care of themselves. However, some of them do mean harm. But that doesn't change how we deal with them. It doesn't change how, our, how God has empowered us. So I just want you to know as we walk into this subject today that there's no relationship, no friendship, no group, no job, no church, no church 
that's pain-free. People are walking away from the church in America every day because they got hurt there thinking you, you shouldn't get hurt in church. And if that were true, half of the New Testament would not exist because half of the New Testament is about how to deal with each other and how to love each other, especially when we're less than lovable. Okay? So, as we think about that, I want to jump into Matthew 18. Uh, by way of Romans 12, you're like, that doesn't fit. I know it's because I got ahead of my notes. It's no problem. What happens when we get hurt is we tend to get mad, bitter, angry, whatever. What we tend to do is we tend to set up court in our lives where we are the judge. And, and so people hurt us, and then we begin to judge and evaluate their motivations and the things that they did. And so when we do that, we're actually stepping into God's role. Because God says in, in Romans 12, 19, out of the message, he says, Don't on, insist on getting even. That's not for you. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. That's God's word. That's what God says he'll do. He says he'll take care of it. So that means you can take some pressure off of yourself. And so we look at Matthew 18, and this is the story. This is not a, it's not a cool story. It's an ugly story. It's a story about a king. It's a story about two servants. One servant owed the king a ridiculous amount of money, and another servant owed the servant who owed the king an insignificant amount of money. Okay? And that's the story that we get into. So the first servant comes to the king, and he's, he's called... Um, he called before the king because the king forgave him a ridiculous debt, a heavy debt, and that servant took that debt and, and took his forgiveness and then did not pass that on. The Bible says in Matthew 18, 32, after, after the servant that was forgiven so much refused to forgive someone who owed him so little, it says the king called in the man who had forgiven he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the anger king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. I want you to see in this little story that I'm not going to go into in a whole lot of depth is how, he, how, how to offend a king. How to offend the king of kings. And how do you do that? Well, you try to be the king. You try to be the judge of other people's life. In this story, a man was forgiven a ridiculous debt, and then someone owed him an insignificant debt, and he refused to forgive it. And what happened after that was that the, the servant, who was so rude and so cruel to the other servant, was thrown into jail after he had already thrown the other person into jail. And I got to thinking about Matthew 18, and I'm like, what good is debtor's prison? Like if someone owes you money, and you throw them into jail, you're not getting your money back. You're never going to get this thing evened up, right? What is that about? And the more I thought about it, I, I, it came to me. I, I, I think the Holy Spirit showed me. Unforgiveness and, and, and holding grudges against people and thinking that they owe you isn't about being even. It's not about forgiveness. It's not about making it right. It's about punishment. It's about someone paying because they had the nerve to have a debt against you. And so in that story in Matthew 18, we see a, a servant who was forgiven much refused to, lit, to forgive little and offend a king. And in the end, that, <clears throat> that servant, both of them ended up in jail. What, why is punishment 
an issue. God put all the punishment that you and I deserve on Jesus. All of it. And you think God's out to get you. You think God's punishing you just because you live in a world that's broken and things go bad. Just because God doesn't short-circuit someone else's choices, you think God doesn't care. And so what we want to do today is we want to move into a place where we can see this incredible power in us that is the ability to forgive others the ability, the supernatural ability to forgive others and how to do it practically without going insane. Wouldn't that be nice? Because I don't know about you, but I have issues. Do you have issues? I've tried to unsubscribe, but I can't find the number. <laughs> I have issues that I'd like to get, let go of. And I, I don't want any, I don't want to live my life thinking people owe me something. If somebody owes you something, then someone's got to keep the books and send out the bills, right? And that's stress I don't want in my life. God's about your freedom. His commandments are about setting you free, not about enslaving you. And so how can we move into a place where we can actually do something that God has empowered us to do? So we're going to look at two sons, and then we're going to apply it. The first son we're going to look at is a man named Absalom in the Old Testament, and then we're going to look at a son named Joseph. So the story that backgrounds what I'm going to talk about today, is, and basically I have a long introduction and a short sermon, so let me try and get through the long introduction part. So Absalom, in 2 Samuel 13, you read about the family situation, not just family drama, but there was a crime that took place. Absalom's sister, Tamar, who was his full sister, was raped by his half-brother, Amnon. It was a horrible, wicked, evil thing that happened. And Amnon did something evil, and Tamar bore the brunt of his evil actions. The king was furious about it. If you read into uh, in 2 Samuel, the story that's behind it, about, about verse 21, and Absalom was one of these guys that he got really angry and talked to no one. He took everything that happened with, with, with Amnon, the offender, the king, who that Absalom did not believe dealt with the situation adequately. And he took all of that inside and said nothing to anyone. He didn't talk to Amnon, didn't talk to the king, didn't talk to him. All he did was he set out for revenge. He set out to be the judge, jury, and executioner in the situation. So in 2 Samuel 13, two years after the crime, Absalom invites Amnon to a party, gets him drunk, and verse 22 says, And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. In verse 28, he tells his men, wait until he gets drunk, and then at my signal, kill him. See, the Old Testament reads like, a, I don't know, an action movie. It's crazy. It's really violent. If you think the Bible's rated G, you haven't read it. And so, he took all that bitterness and that offense and that crime against his sister. And then, not only did he get mad at the perpetrator, he got mad at the king because he did not feel that the king administered justice correctly. And he took it all, and he packed it deep, and he took one crime that deserved justice, and he committed another crime. 
and murdered his half-brother. Then he ends up in hiding. Then he goes into, um, you know, out of town and hiding. For three years, he lives banished from the homeland. And all this three years, here's the thing. For two years, he planned on how to kill his brother. And as soon as he kills his brother, you think, well, that's it. It's over. And that's the way it always works with unforgiveness. You think you, think you, you know how you're going to get loose of it, but you never do. And the plan you have to end it never works. And you still end up bitter. And that's what happened to Absalom. He, he spent two years planning his brother's murder. And then he spent three years seething in bitterness, banished from his own land because of the crime that he had committed, but he didn't see it as a crime. He saw it as justice, although he had no right to administer justice. He wasn't the king. He wasn't the judge. So he spent three years seething on the inside. So finally, a family, a friend of the family, Joab. Joab was not a cool dude. If you're looking for cool dudes in the Bible, Joab is not one of those guys. But he does, in this instance, become a mediator between Absalom and his father. And Joab operates and gets Absalom back home. And in 1433 of 2 Samuel, we see uh, that David summoned Absalom, who came to him, bowed low before the king, and the king kissed him. David totally restores Absalom. Sorry, I've got another sermon God gave me last night about this text, and I'm really trying hard not to preach it. My, my, my point is, King David's the king. He's the rightful king. It was King David's job to administer justice in the situation with Amnon, and it was King David's job to administer justice in the situation with Absalom. And in both of those situations, the king acted in ways that other people considered unjust. So David restores Absalom, but the problem is, Absalom. Absalom, two years planning a murder, three years seething over the situation. It didn't solve anything. And so all of that pain and all that bitterness and all that hurt, it's got to go somewhere. You see, this is the, the thing about the pain in our lives. We all get hurt. We all get wounded. If you don't clean the wounds, they fester. They infect and they poison. And so that's what happened with Absalom. And so what started out as a crime against his sister turned into an act of murder, should have ended in a restoration when he came back home, turned into a plot to overthrow a God-ordained king. King David was picked by God to sit on that throne. And Absalom, because he judged his father's justice as unjust, chose to overthrow his father. So you see in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom began this campaign. He would go to the city gates every day, and this, I'll read you the text. Then Absalom would say to people, he would, he would see people who were in trouble, had issues. They'd come by, and Absalom would say, hey, you really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone would bring their cases to me for judgment, and I would give them justice. What you hear Absalom saying here is, this king will give you no justice. This king won't give you justice as I see justice being just, but I'll give you justice in the way that I see justice being just. 
And so he begins to work this little campaign that turns into a movement, that turns into an overthrow, a mutiny, so to speak, of the kingdom. That bitterness that started with his sister Tamar and the crime that Amnon committed poisoned his soul and his life became a mission to unseat God's king. Bitterness turned Absalom into a a crazy man. (laughs) And what's really ironic is that Joab, that guy I told you earlier that I said was not a cool dude, Joab who, who... negotiated Absalom's restoration with King David was the very man to drive a knife into Absalom's heart when this drama finally ends. The end of the story, Absalom's bitterness and unforgiveness cause an, an overthrow, a coup to overthrow the kingdom, ends in his death, his shame, and being lost to history other than what the scriptures record of him. I, I, there was a, a chance in his life that things could have been made better. But Absalom got bitter and things got worse. That's the ruin of a son. I was worshiping last night and thinking on this message. And I was listening to some, some stuff by... Um, I don't know, Elevation, Dante Bo, some guys that I listen to nowadays. And I was thinking about David and the story of Absalom. Because the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And uh, I don't know how familiar you are with David's story, but I'm telling you, David was a train wreck. Uh, You read the Psalms, and we really love to spiritualize things in church to motivate you but I don't I like to be real and I'm telling you the Psalms they just seem like they're written written by a guy who's on the verge of a psychotic act one day he's down and one day he's up one day he's God's awesome and one day where is God I mean he's just all over the map and that's what I love about the Psalms because they're real they're just real and I'm sitting there listening to worship music and I'm thinking God what about David is after your heart. And, and, and you know what I've always thought about? It, it, you know, it's because he, he was a poet and a warrior. He was just a very passionate man. And I'm just like, well, that, that sounds like God. Passionate, warrior, poet. But last night, it, I had a different thought altogether. And I never, never had this thought before about King David. And, and I think the, what it was about David that was like the heart of God is in the way that he loved his sons. Now, Michael, if I were you, and I knew what I know about David, I'd be going, uh, he didn't do a great job with his sons. <laughs> that was my first thought, too. And then the Lord brought to mind Luke 15, which is the story of the prodigal son, and how that the father, against everything that society and popular thought dictated at that time gave the son his inheritance before the father was dead so that the son could go out and learn what ultimately would teach him how to be free. And when I look at the story of Amnon and Absalom and Solomon and other of David's sons, this, because when Absalom is killed, David is shattered. 
His son who just tried to overthrow him and kill him and ruin everything that he had built. David is shattered at the violence and the act of his son. And I see this father who loves his son and wants to see them walk in power and in life and in freedom. And I think that's what's the heart of God in King David. I don't think we realize how much God is for our freedom. So Absalom's life ends in ruin and shame. And we need to know something. When we talk about the issue of forgiveness, you need to know this, and it's a hard truth. Forgiveness always requires death. Now some people are going out there, yeah, yeah, that's right, kill my enemies. Do you know what God did for his enemies? He died in their place. So before you get all excited about, yeah, bring death on my enemies, God's plan for his enemies was to die in their place. And so forgiveness always begins with the place of death. Romans 5.10, God says, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we're still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. God didn't kill his enemies. He died in their place. So you and I have to learn to die to things, our right to be judged, our, our right to be paid back for whatever we think that has happened to us. So one son's ruin teaches us about this. And then we come to another son, Joseph. Now, Joseph's story is different than Absalom's. Very, very, very different. Although it starts out worse. Because the crime perpetrated against uh, Joseph was directly on him. It wasn't an indirect thing. And so, Joseph's brothers win Worst Brothers Ever Award. I mean, if that trophy ever goes around at the end of time, Joseph's brothers would win that. We talked about him a few weeks ago, how that he had shared his dreams, his hearts, his God vision with his brothers, and all it did was make them mad and, and make them jealous. And so, because he shared his dreams, Joseph ends up beaten up, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, which you should know that Joseph remained a slave the rest of his life. That's very important to understand. Most people think that when Joseph came to the throne in Egypt that now he's a free man. Or No, no, his power is completely under the authority of Pharaoh. Pharaoh dictated his wife and everything. He, he died a slave. Important to understand. His life was changed by what happened. His story's a little weird. He ends up in jail, ends up in Potiphar's house, ends up back in jail. Poof! Ends up second in command. That doesn't happen for everybody, but it did for Joseph. <coughs> Excuse me. So in Genesis 45, Joseph is back. He's, he's, he's in the place of power. He took the, the low road to the high throne. He's back in power, and one day, into his office, and he's the man with his, his hand on all the food in Egypt, and into his office walk these 11, 10 guys, 10 guys who had ruined his life and made him a slave. Now, if you read the accounts of, Gen of Joseph in Genesis 14, I mean, 44 and 45, maybe back into 43, you can see the turmoil 
that, was, that came out of Joseph's life when his brothers walked in the office. I mean, there's this, this drama that plays out between him and his brothers and trips back to Israel, I mean, to the Canaan land and, and back into Egypt. I mean, it's just, you can tell that he's really struggling because he has the power to get even. He has the power in that moment when those ten brothers who were so awful to him walk in his office that day, he, and they don't even know who he is, he has the power at his hand easily with a word he could have ended their lives, ruined them completely and forever. He could have enslaved them. I mean, he had so much going on. So you see this back and forth in Genesis 43 and 44, but when we get to chapter 45... It looks like Joseph settled it. And it looks like he did it all internally. It looks like he, 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 he finally came to peace with the path that had brought him to the place of power. And so in Genesis 45, verse 1, Joseph could stand it no longer. His brothers are there. There are 11 of them there at this point. There are many people in the room And he said to his attendants, the Egyptian attendants, Out, all of you. So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Rather than get even, Joseph spared his brother's dignity. Rather than make it a big story in Egypt, Joseph made it a family matter. Rather than get even and hurt them, Joseph chose to forgive them. His brothers. And they deserved to be treated badly. They deserved it. They were bad. Very naughty. And Joseph forgave them. So instead of judging them, he brings them closer. And not in a way that we do it today, you know? Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Not like that. The Bible says in Genesis 45, verse 4, he says to his brothers, please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. Instead of pushing them out of his life, Joseph pulled them in. Now, Now think how differently this is compared to Absalom. Absalom's brother committed a crime against his his sister and and he ends up killing his brother. And, And Joseph's brothers committed a crime against Joseph. And what does he do? He brings them into his life. He begins to cherish them. He says to him in verse 11, I will take care of you, for there are still five years of this famine ahead of us. Otherwise, you, your household, and all your animals will starve. Look at what Joseph accomplishes. Look at what Absalom accomplishes. Absalom accomplishes a civil war, ruin of a nation, and shame. And Joseph accomplishes saving his people, saving his entire family, saving his nation. And he's so beloved as a national leader that 400 years later, they dig his body out of the ground and transport him to Canaan with him. They love his memory and his legacy that much. Two different stories. 
And I like to think, what would have happened if Absalom, instead of getting bitter and angry with his father, what if he had stepped alongside his father and then worked together to make sure the injustices that Ammon committed never happened again? What if they had worked together in forgiveness and in some kind of partnership rather than just going straight to war with each other? Things changed. Two sons. One died a villain. One died a national hero. And all the difference was this thing called forgiveness. What changed everything was this simple, simple thing. Not easy. Simple thing of forgiveness. And so Paul writes to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness. Rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. That's Paul's instructions to us. And we, we talk about this passage. We, we pray through that, and, and we've been told, you've got to forgive, you've got to let it go. But that's not easy. I know, I mean, I've taught those messages and then sat down with people and and they've told me their stories and I'm like, yes, that would be very difficult to to forgive, to let go of. So I wanted to clarify what I'm talking about when I talk about forgiveness because there's some questions you've got to answer, some things to think about when you move into the land of, am I going to forgive something that's happened to me, something done to me? How, How can I even do that? First of all, let's start there. Can you forgive. Is it possible for you to forgive? Well, let me follow that with a question. Are you a child of God? Do you follow Jesus? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? You have a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. So do you have the ability to forgive? The the simple, not easy, the simple answer is yes. Yes, but it's always like stepping onto a raging sea. Anything God asks you to do, he will empower you to do. But in order for you to do the thing he empowers you to do, you have to take a step. Usually into something that's raging and messy and difficult. Simple answer, yes, you have the power to forgive. You've been been instructed to do that. Before you, though, you start wrestling with, oh man, i got to forgive things. Let me tell you what forgiveness isn't. Because I think this is our problem with forgiveness. We, We don't... We don't realize that, that when I forgive someone, it doesn't mean I'm just opening the door to everything in my life. Forgiveness isn't restoring access to untrustworthy people. That's not necessarily forgiveness. It is definitely not devaluing the valuable person that God created you to be and inviting abusers and users into your life. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not taking an unnecessary risk. That's not what I'm talking about. I'll tell you what I believe forgiveness is. Forgiveness is this. It's recognizing the pain that was caused. Stating the pain and the wrongness of it. Forgiveness is setting yourself free. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. And, and, and forgiveness is realizing something bad happened. It shouldn't have happened. It hurt, made me angry, made me sad. It broke my heart. Whatever it was, 
We as believers especially need to learn how to state the realities of our hearts. Why? Because God doesn't know how we feel? No, because we don't know how we feel. And what happens is we walk around with this weight of, well, i got to forgive them, i got to forgive them. And we feel guilty because we can't forgive them. And the reason we can't forgive them is because we can never state in any way what happened, why it was wrong, and how it hurt. And so we walk around with this weight of guilt because we're struggling forgiving people. And I'm going to tell you something. If you don't struggle forgiving people, it probably wasn't even an offense. If it's easy... I'm not even sure there's anything there to forgive. My point is, is that you and I are empowered to forgive, and what forgiveness is, is recognizing the pain and stating the pain, stating the wrongness of the pain, a kind of, in a sense, agreeing. It's a, it's a confession part that moves us into a place of higher thinking. Confession leads to repentance. Confession leads to higher thinking. And so when I can state what happened, why it was wrong, and how it hurt, I make a lot of progress. I begin to move to forgiveness. Who do I need to forgive? People, who, who do I need to look at and forgive my life? Well, first, obviously, I need to forgive anyone who's hurt me or offended me in my life. Okay? And, and a lot of times that's going to involve a conversation. Hey, you hurt me. And that doesn't always go as planned. You know, it would be nice if you said, hey, you hurt me. And, this, and people say, oh, I'm sorry. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? My dad, my dad worked under this really tough pastor in Illinois uh, when he was a young man. I was a little kid and he was a youth minister and, and the church didn't treat him well and the pastor treated him really badly. It really discouraged my dad as a, as a minister and everything. And so about five, ten years later he heard a message on forgiveness that was probably better than this one and he, he, he decided to sit down and write a letter to that pastor that he worked for and just tell him what had happened and how it hurt him and, uh, and so forth, which is a beautiful act, you know. So he did, wrote the letter, sent it to the guy. About a month later, he gets the letter back, and the pastor writes back, I did nothing wrong, have a great life. <laughs> so, I mean, what do you do, you know, with something like that, something as painful as that? Do you just pack in the more bitterness? Because what can you do with that? And so my dad was then faced with a choice. Just let the situation get worse, the infected wound continue to fester, or forgive. Pour out the poison, stop drinking it himself, and set himself free. Because unforgiveness is like a debt. That guy owes me an apology. That person owes me some money. That person owes me some respect. And we hold it as a debt. Let me ask you a question. Considering all that you owe God... Who in this world could possibly owe you anything? That's the issue that's at stake. And so when people have hurt us or offended us, we need to work at forgiving those people. We'll talk about some practicals here in just a second. We definitely need to forgive people who ask for mercy. I mean, Peter and Jesus had this conversation right there in Scripture for us to see. How often should I forgive someone? And Jesus said, just keep doing it, Peter, bottom line. There were some numbers there, but they were so ridiculous that he was just saying, just keep forgiving, Peter. If someone asks you for forgiveness, they may not understand. You may not trust them. We're not saying we're giving them the keys to your refrigerator. Anybody else have keys on their refrigerator? I'm the only one. Okay, that's weird. Nobody's getting my chicken. Anyway, so 
People ask for mercy, you forgive them. You don't, and, and what you're saying is you don't owe me anything. In fact, I love you. Now, I may love you like I love grizzly bears from a distance, but I love you, okay? Keep my love onto you. You know, there's someone else you should forgive. And this one's really important. It's you. Past you may have been a jerk to present you. You may have made some mistakes along the way. They may not have been mistakes. They may have been quite intentional. And they did some harm to your present life. And believe me, I know a lot about regrets, and I know a lot about sitting around stuck in my head, very angry at a past version of me. And so, why not let you off the hook? Why not take the grace that God has extended to you and receive it? Stop drinking the poison of unforgiveness against past you. So, forgive people who hurt you. Forgive people who ask for mercy. Forgive you. And the last one's going to sound a little blasphemous at first, and I'm going to apologize for that. But another thing, person you might want to forgive, is God. You see, the problem with Absalom was that his father was the king. And his father was behaving in a way that a loving father behaves toward a son that he adores. And that's a perfect example of our father God. He's so merciful. I'm telling you, that's the great unknown in the universe. Everyone thinks they have the answers to how God's going to do things. But I'm going to tell you something. God's mercy and grace are such a game changer. So wildly predictable. I have no idea how good God is going to be when all of this ends. But I know it's going to be good. My point is this. He's a loving Father, and He's patient with people, and He's merciful to people. And sometimes God's mercy on other people offends us as His children. Sometimes God's patience with people that we think are wrong and evil offends us. Sometimes God's time scale, the fact that He puts off judgment, puts off justice to another day, makes us angry. And God just doesn't do anything the way I want it done. And He doesn't do anything the way you want it done. And I know people are looking at what's going on in the world today going, man, if there really was a God, He would do something. And I'm here to tell you, He's doing something. He's putting sons and daughters in the middle of that fray to make a difference. That's what He's doing. God doesn't walk into anybody's life, kick their door down, and take away the image of God that's in them, which is the ability to make choices. He doesn't do that. And so, when it comes to God, know that the same mercy He extends to other people that make, may make you angry is the same mercy He extends to you. And it saves your life. And it saves your soul. And it saves your future. The mercy of God, the great unknown. So, 
What I want to challenge us to do and, and what I want to be able to do in my own life with my offenses as we wrap up today, and we're actually about to do communion together to kind of seal the deal here. That sounded crass, I know. I want us to be able to walk out of this place today with a heart that says, nobody owes me anything. Nobody has to make anything right with me. I'll tell you what you do when you do that. You burn your gavel and you tear down your lower court where you've for years and I for years held people on court before me and I brought up all my evidence before the judge that I hired who happened to be me. And I declared them guilty and deserving of justice. And what I've done is I have blocked the flow of righteousness and justice. What we do when we stand in that place where you owe me, you should make this right. We, be, we set up a lower court and we keep the case from getting to the higher court. And so what I want to challenge you to do today is I want, you, I want to challenge you to tear up your courtroom. Nobody owes you anything. No, I, I don't need to declare justice or judgment on anyone. Why? God's the judge. He knows everything. He'll make sure all the ledgers are balanced. He'll take care of it. They'll either be balanced with whatever punishment is right, or they'll be balanced with the blood of Jesus, but one way or the other, they're going to be balanced. He's got this. When I put on my robe and grab my gavel, I make a mockery of the true judge. So I challenge you and I challenge myself, quite honestly. Nobody owes me anything. In fact, here's how to do this in a very practical way. It's simply to look at the situation that either you're facing now or you're facing the past, and you say, I'm letting this go. I'm letting this go. I'm for, I'm, this, is, this is not on my ledger anymore. I'm marking it off. I'm letting this go. And I know what you're thinking, Michael. It's not that easy. I know it's not that easy. I wasn't done yet. Because what happens is today, you, write, you, you, you say, here's the thing. Here's the big, hairy, ugly, awful, painful thing. It was big, hairy, awful, painful. It made me feel awful. And, and, and I'm going to let it go. And, and I'm giving it to God. And I'm putting it before Him. And then I'm going to let this go. And then I'm going to bed tonight. And I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. And, and it'll be back. <laughs> and tomorrow morning, I'm going to say, well, I let this go yesterday. So I'm going to let this go today. And every time that stupid, painful, hairy thing pops up in your life, you're going to say, I'm, I'm going to let this go. I'm going to let this go. You see, there's a reason Jesus said to Peter, if they ask forgiveness over 400 times a day, forgive them. What he's saying is practically to forgive, you have to forgive every time it comes up. And here's what will happen. Here's what will happen. Every time you do it, a little bit more of the bitterness and the venom comes out. Every time you do it, a little bit of the pain comes out. And one day, it'll be a week in between moments that that big hairy thing arrives. And, and one day, it'll be a month. One day, it'll be a year. And one day, you'll wake up and that hairy thing will walk by your window but won't come in and you'll realize, I'm done with that. Forgiveness isn't an instant cure-all. It's a lifestyle. It's a process. 
It is a continual, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. And do you know how we know that? Because that's exactly how our Father deals with us. I forgive. I forgive. Every time I mess up, He's not there to punish. He's always there to restore. And so, can you do this? Yes, you can. Will you do this? That's a choice you'll make today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. But if you do, Jesus will take the pain and eventually you'll be free. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And while they're coming up, I'm going to ask you to grab your communion cup. And I've got to grab one. And maybe if you'd stand with me, that'd be good. This thing comes apart in two pieces, so I'm not good at explaining that. There's a cellophane and a foil. And it doesn't taste good, but we're not doing this for taste. We're doing it because we love Christ and He teaches us. Paul writes, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord Himself. On the night when He was betrayed... The Lord Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it, and then he, he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, here we are. We're so broken. we got so many problems. So many challenges, so many wounds. We are a walking mess of scars. And yet you and your mercy and in your forgiveness and your, your grace toward us, you've forgiven every bit of our mess. And Lord, as we gather here to take communion together and to, to be with Jesus in this moment, would you help us to give to others what you've given to us? You forgave our mess. You showed us how we could walk close to you and come straight into your throne room. Help us to love others, forgive them, and, and find ways to build trust again. Find ways to restore again as we drink this together and eat this bread together, would you help us to set everyone in our life that owes us free? And would you help us to walk out of this place as free, reborn sons and daughters of God? You're a good Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Pastor Steve.